Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. I'm Nathan Owens. Sitting across the desk from me, as usual, is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who are listening. So good to be allowed in your home this evening and look forward to the interaction with you. Maybe you don't have a question, but you have a suggested topic that you'd like us to discuss in a future episode of That's Truth. Please send in your suggestions. Again, we want this program to be as po- as practical as possible. And the best way to do that is to be discussing things that are being thought about in your mind or discussed around your dinner table, discussed at your workplace, or you hear discussed on the bus as you're going to and from a location. So if you have a suggested topic you'd like us to discuss, please contact us and let us know. For those of you who have sent in suggested topics, thank you very much. We appreciate it, and Lord willing, we will get to your suggested topics as the Lord leads. Now, before we jump back into our topic we were discussing last week, we have a couple of questions that have come in or that came in at the end, toward the end of last week's program, but uh, we're a little more involved than just being able to answer it directly on the air. And Pastor asked that we start out this episode with the question. The first one is a WhatsApp question from Antigua, and it's in reference to, are there any discrepancies in these verses? If you're wanting to follow along in your own Bible, the first passage comes from Mark chapter 1, and it says, And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome had brought sweet spices that had they might come and anoint him. And then we're going to jump to Matthew 28, verse 1, where it says, Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. Jumping to a similar record in Luke 24, Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came onto the sepulchre, bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them. And the fourth gospel of John in, so John chapter 20 says, The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulchre, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulchre. Pastor, are there any discrepancies in these verses? They're not discrepancies, but there are differences uh, in the verses themselves. And one needs to understand that 
they're four Gospels, and you've got four different perspectives. You've got the, the Matthian perspective of Matthew, you've got the Lucan perspective, Markian, and also got the Johannine perspective. All of these men have got specific purposes in writing uh, the Gospel, and they're targeting uh, different audiences, and they're selecting material that is fundamental to getting across the message that they're trying to um, carry across in, in their writings. Matthew, for example, uh, was written to the Jews mainly, and the emphasis in the book of Matthew has to do with Jesus Christ as king. Mark, on the other hand, writes to the Romans, and uh, the key word in Romans is servant, because civil service was a key thing um, as far as the Romans would be concerned. Luke, on the other hand, writes to the Greeks, and one of the things that the Greeks always elevated was the human being, the human, you always see these Greek statues where they're trying to create this perfect model of what a man is supposed to be. And that's why in the, in the Gospel of, of Luke, the emphasis is placed on the humanity of Christ, that he is the perfect man. And then John, of course, um, he writes to the world, and he emphasizes that Jesus Christ is God. So every writer has a specific audience he's targeting, and he has a specific purpose and message and theme he's dealing with, and he's selecting out of the information what was suitable uh, to convey his message and get across what he wanted to. For example, in the passage that you uh, read, Mark um, 16, 1-5, to and Mark uh, Matthew chapter 28, and Luke 24, and John 20, you'll find that they basically say the same thing but emphasizes uh, different factors. For example, Mark talks about Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome coming to the the tomb, uh, basically. Uh, you find that in, in Matthew, uh, Mary Magdalene is mentioned, and the other Mary, so she mentions the same two Marys. In Luke, on the other hand, neither of the Marys are mentioned, just said that they came to the tomb. And then in John chapter 20, only Mary Magdalene is mentioned. So the fact that they did not mention all the characters, there's not a contradiction. For example, what the purpose of mentioning, uh, you're trying to elevate, uh, to show that Christ is the perfect man. Uh, there's no need for him to bring in the woman into the story. So he said they came to the tomb uh, in Luke. Uh, on the other hand, um, Mark thought it was important, and, and Matthew thought it was important to, to mention these two ladies. But they also, Matthew, for example, did not mention Salome. He just mentioned Mary and uh, the two Marys who came. That's not a contradiction. He's just selecting uh, what he thought was important for the audience he was writing. Uh, if he had uh, indicated clearly that there was no Mary and no uh, there, no, that would be a contradiction. But if I say they came to the tomb, uh, irrespective of who they are, the fact is that if they came, it's at least two people came. But again, they're more than, than two, so there's no, no problem there. And then also when you come to... Um, John chapter 20, um, Mary Magdalene is mentioned and not Mary, the mother of James, and also Salome. Uh, again, um, that's the author's selecting. It's like you've seen an accident, and you four of us seen an accident and, and trying to write what happened at the accident. Uh, you're going to see people who are the accident that I didn't even notice because you might see a friend that you would have known, but I didn't even know that was your friend. So to your, it's important for you to include that friend. For me, it doesn't really matter. What does it matter is the details. But in all four cases, in, in, et cetera, if you take the four um, narratives that you have there and you put them on <coughs> parallel, <coughs> parallel lines and then uh, work out the details, uh, it could be written something like this. <coughs> 
after the Sabbath had passed, while it was still dark, <clears throat> at the beginning of the first day of the week, came Mary, uh, Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, Salome, and others. And they came to bring spices to anoint his body. But when they got there, the tomb and the rock was already uh, rolled away. He was not there. <clears throat> that is the gist and the essence. Uh, so when you piece all of that together, uh, there's no real contradiction. It's just that no one writer felt that they needed to include everything the other writer wrote. By the way, this shows you that there was no collusion between the New Testament writers, and there were independent witnesses that gave uh, their understanding of what took place at that point of time. What these, this narrative does, it complements each other, and it shows you the unique style and the penchant for detail that one writer had over another, uh, but they all confirmed the same thing, that uh, the people came to the tomb, three women, essentially, when they got there expecting to be able to anoint his body with the with the, uh, the spices, they found that the stone was rolled away and that Jesus Christ was not in the tomb. That is the gist and the essence and the core teaching of that passage. So while there are some details that are unique to each writer, the core of what happened there, uh, all of them say basically the same thing. The women came with the spices, they wanted to anoint the body, but when they got there, the stone was rolled away and uh, Jesus was gone. It was a witness towards the fact that Christ was resurrected. The other thing is that the Sabbath had passed. It was early, dark in the morning, as the sun was rising on the first day of the week. So he rose out of the first day of the week. That's the biblical emphasis that the Bible talks about. And so I don't see any contradiction in it. I just think that the writers are selective, and some people emphasize certain details that were not necessary uh, for them in terms of what they wanted to write about and what the message they wanted to convey and to whom they were writing the audience. Thank you to the individual who sent in that question. Mm -hmm. We appreciate it. And a follow-up, also, <clears throat> what were the Jewish customs for handling male and female dead during the BCE time period? Well, look, I didn't get a chance to, um, I, as a matter of fact, I didn't see that part of the question, to be honest with you, so I didn't do any research on that. Um, but it is very clear from what we have in the Gospels that the body was somewhat embalmed with spices and uh, it was wrapped in, 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 cloth, in cloth, like a, uh, like a bandage, quite frankly. Uh, that would have been that, that in the New Testament clearly that is exactly what happened so that when Peter went into the tomb uh, he saw the, the bandages as though a man had just left the bandage and it was not unrolled that's how he knew that uh, Christ just came through the bandages and that's what shocked uh, the, the New Testament writers it's just that you um, like, uh, what you might call uh, it's just that you find in the shell where you lock me in a in a cage, and you come and you find that the cage is still locked, but my body is gone. Uh, that is what really uh, shocked the disciples to see that the bandage was there uh, in, in in one place, and not it wasn't dismantled, and so they realized that Christ's body had passed through the bandages, and that is what uh, shocked them. John talks about this in the Gospel of John. But I will, I, I will investigate a little bit more uh, to give more detail. But to my knowledge, uh, from the New Testament, clearly there was, uh, this is a kind of an embalming of the body using spices. And that's what was done. And one other question that is a carryover from the end of last <coughs> week's program. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 4. And we're going to be comparing that to 1 Timothy 2.5. And God spake all these words, saying, 
I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth below or in the water or under the earth. And then jumping down to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. If God himself gave this commandment, Pastor, why didn't he specify there should be a mediator to come? Well, I think he did indicate there would be a mediator, and he did it in several ways. Uh, number one, for example, the first promise of a Messiah is found in Genesis 3.15. It's called the Proto-Evangelium, the first mention of the gospel, the good news. And that is that the seed of the woman, not the seed of a man, the seed of a woman would one day bruise the serpent's head and he would come and also that the serpent would bruise his heel. That was a, an initial prophecy that the Messiah was coming, the Lord Jesus Christ was coming. He would destroy Satan and um, his kingdom, and that Satan would bruise his heel. And what is very significant, by the way, that when they have, uh, um, archaeologists have discovered that the, the crucifixion, the nail uh, that went into the foot went from the instep right through the heel. It's one of the uh, incidental um, confirmations of biblical truth. So from Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman is coming. That is the mediator. That is the. But then uh, it, it doesn't end there. It comes where God chooses Abraham. And we learn that this seed of the woman would come to Abraham. He chose the nation Israel as the means of bringing the salvific faith and truth to the world. So it would come to, he would come to not only the seed of the woman, but he would also come to the seed of Abraham. But it doesn't stop there. It says it would come to Isaac. And then this one would come to Jacob. Jacob was the one, of course, where he had 12 children. And we're told that one of those children, the Messiah, would come. That would be Judah. The scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes, basically. And then we learn further that out of Judah would come, the Messiah would come to the line of David, the Davidic line. And then we find that in the Gospel of Matthew and Luke, that the line of David through the Messiah come was Mary, who was of the Davidic line, and Joseph, who was of the Davidic line. And that's where Jesus comes. That's why you have the genealogies, by the way, so that you would know when the mediator comes, when the Messiah comes. You would be able to trace his lineage and know exactly how he would come. He could not have come to Isaac, I mean, come to um, Esau, because he must come to Isaac. He must come to Jacob. He must come to Judah. He must come to David. He must come to uh, Mary and Joseph. And that's where Jesus comes. So to say that uh, he did not uh, is really to, to be misinformed as to what God's plan. Progressively, he's been unfolding who the Messiah would be, how you would come, what tribe you would come from, what nation you would come from, etc., and what uh, family line you would come from. But there are other things as well. The sacrificial system that was uh, in, in, installed in Israel in the book of Exodus, uh, it was very, very clear that 
uh, man's sin had to be covered, had to be atoned for, and God instituted a, a system of sacrifice where you would have uh, sacrifice for sin, for trespassing, etc., etc. There were five different sacrifices that are mentioned in the Old Testament. But the, the specifications as to the substitute and the qualifications for the substitute, this, this lamb, uh, which was pre- a prefigurement of Christ, had to be male. He had to be perfect. Uh, he had to be in his prime, etc. All of those details were pointed that when the Messiah did come, uh, that he would meet those details. Uh, he would be in the prime of his life when he dies. He would be a male, but he also would be perfect, without sin, perfect. The other thing is that there are many other types in the Bible that were used to illustrate what the Messiah would be and what the, uh, the, the mediator would be. For example, in the book of Ruth, the kinsman redeemer, that explains uh, how it would work that in order for uh, the land to be re- re- uh, redeemed, uh, you had to be related. Uh, and, and so Christ had to be a man. He could not just be, be God. He had to be God and man at the same time. There has to be a kinship between us and him, and that's where his humanity comes about. And there are others, of course, who are other types, like Moses said, the Lord would raise up unto, unto you a prophet like unto myself. And, of course, Moses is a perfect type uh, of Christ, uh, who was sold by his brothers and who was rejected the first time, but who was accepted the second time. We don't have time to go through the details, the meticulous details, to show you what the type was. But there are many other types. So not only by prophecy, not only by the sacrificial system, but also the, what is called typology in the, in the Old Testament. Uh, all of this was proving that, uh, that one day one would come who would be the mediator, who would be the Messiah, and he would die for the sins of the world to put away the, the sin of humanity. So um, it, it's not correct to say that our Lord uh, didn't, didn't promise that. And the other thing, by the way, uh, I think the, the person who sent in is, is wondering again uh, why would then would be used pictures. I think that's the whole issue here. That Look, Jesus Christ is not God the Father, okay? but Jesus Christ was a man. He was both God and man at the same time. So uh, again, when we have a picture of Jesus, we're not saying that's God the Father. We're just saying that um, basically that he was a human being, uh, clothed in human flesh, a, a Jew by nature, and, and a Jew by ethnicity, uh, and and so he did have a form. Uh, 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 he assumed a form, a human form. So he was God clothed in human flesh. That's called the incarnation that uh, Timothy talks about, talks about. You're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We're broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at radiolighthouse.org. If you're listening to this program and you say, you know what, I wish I had heard the beginning of it, I missed what was said or the context, you can go back and listen to the rebroadcast on Saturday afternoon from 3.30 to 5 p.m. And if you miss that or you're going to be busy, you're going to be at market or something, you can listen to it online. You can go to our website, radiolighthouse.org. Scroll down to the second large photo that you see. It'll have a microphone on the screen. And right in the center of the screen, there's a circle that says podcast. Click on that podcast if you're not familiar with it. That just means that we've taken a program, an audio file. We've put it out there on the Internet. You can listen to it on your phone or on your computer whenever it is convenient with you. 
We have archived the radio program. You click on the podcast link, click on the That's Truth archive, and you can go to the previous episode and listen to the program. Do you have a question? It doesn't have to pertain to a question that's coming tonight. It doesn't have to pertain to the topic we're discussing tonight. It can be a question about life, a question about the Bible, a question about churches, a question about really anything. And pastor will answer it from a biblical worldview using scripture. You can call and ask it live on the air by calling 1-268-462-7420. I'm going to give that to you again. I realize I didn't give you time to get your phone unlocked or pick up a pen or piece of paper. The phone number to be put live on the air is 1-268-462-7420. We would love to have you call and ask your question. But maybe you're not so sure about speaking live on the air. That's not a problem at all. We still have other ways that you can communicate with us. You can ask your question on WhatsApp or text message by sending it to 1-268-782-1454. I'll give that to you again. WhatsApp or text 268-782-1454. And you can also send it to us on Facebook. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and then right there in the comment section, you can send it, and it'll get passed along to Pastor Murphy. Our topic that we are going to resume from last week is a very effective topic. It's a topic that, honestly, the more I think about it, Pastor, I believe this topic affects many, many areas of life, from generations to come, unity in the family, poverty, in some cases depression, behavior problems with children. You say, wow, that's a broad topic. What is it? It's marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Pastor, for those who are just tuning in for the first time tonight, and they didn't hear the first six questions on this topic last week that you covered, can you give us just kind of a brief overview of where we're coming from? Well, the first thing we did was to look at the biblical perspective of marriage. How, how does the Bible view marriage? And we hi- highlighted several things. We talked about the fact that it was a covenantal relationship between a man and a woman, that it was designed to create a not only a physical unity, but a spiritual unity between t- two individuals. We also showed it was monogamous. It was always intended one man, one woman. It was always heterosexual, male and female, and that it was designed to be permanent. Uh, we also said it was a reflection of the covenant relationship between God and Israel. Uh, God as a husband, Israel as the nation, the wife. And then also in, in the New Testament, we discovered that it was designed to be a picture of the type of relationship Christ would have with the church. That's mentioned in Ephesians chapter 5. That was the first thing that we did. Then we looked at the matter of uh, the purpose of marriage, and we identified four purposes. One has to do with companionship. It's not good for man to be alone. The other one has to do with complementing each other, uh, a help meet. And uh, basically that has to do with uh, two persons being imperfect, uh, men having assets and liabilities, women having assets and liabilities, and each complementing each other uh, so that there is a bonding between the two persons and each other person's needs are met. And then the idea of children being fruitful and multiply, and then we mentioned the matter of copulation or conjugal uh, pleasure, that is basically sex and pleasure, that is also part of marriage. Those are the four... Uh, biblical um, um, 
purposes of marriage that are mentioned in the book of um, book of um, Genesis. Uh, so we thought it was important to, to mention that. And then the, the third thing we talked about is about okay, that is so. What about when? A, uh, what about marriage to an unbeliever, uh, a Christian? And we pointed out that a Christian should never marry an unbeliever. Uh, it is contrary to God's will. It's against God's word, and um, it should not be encouraged. As a matter of fact, I pointed out that no minister of the gospel uh, should ever uh, unite a. A Christian with a non-Christian in marriage. Uh, to do so is to disobey God, to incur sin, and also to um, encourage that which God contradicts and uh, it's contrary to God's word. And after that, the, the other thing we did, Nathan, was to, okay, if that's the case, how should a Christian respond to a person who is getting married, a Christian want to marry an unsafe person? Uh, what, what do you do in a case like that? And I, I, I suggested that you pray for the person that the consummation would not take place. Um, I also mentioned that... Um, what if it's already, they've already had sex? Well, sex is not a basis for marriage. Uh, that's what people think. that, uh, and, and that is where, for example, a guy gets a girl pregnant and they, they're encouraged to marry. That may be the very ruination of the relationship and um, it, it has so many repercussions. The fact that you uh, got a girl pregnant, that is not a basis for marriage. Um, uh, to to get into a marriage like that and to, to force into a situation like that, the, the person then realized, quite frankly, that um, it was a bad decision. And you're just getting married because I got pregnant. There's got to be more to a marriage than just pregnant because the Bible gives you four reasons. Sex is one, but what are the other factors? Can there be a unity there? Uh, was it just a physical unity, but any real spiritual relationship is going on there? So um, that is not the the the, the basis for, for marriage, and I know that it has been encouraged uh, in the past, but most of those marriages ever last because there's a lot of guilt and one person charging another person. If you didn't push me here and did 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 this, etc., it's almost the beginning of the downfall of the marriage itself. Yeah, right. So it's not that's not the basis for marriage, but the idea is. Uh, don't participate in the wedding if you think that the person is it's biblically wrong. Um, just explain to them you can't endorse and support something that is contrary to Scripture. However, I did mention that once the marriage is complete, in spite of your protestation or your advice or your counsel, uh, it's important to understand that once it is done, that becomes the will of God for that person's life, and you must do everything in your power now to, to help that marriage to succeed. So you must not hold it against the person, uh, and you must do everything you can uh, to ensure that um, it, 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 it perpetuates itself and remain permanent. Uh, and if you can be of help in, in, in seeing that that is a course in which it runs, well, then you should uh, do everything that you can to help and assist in that. Uh, but you can disagree with a person still be respectful. You can tell me, Pastor, I can't, I can't do this. I don't think this is the right thing. I still, still, that doesn't mean that I can take it out on you. Um, you differ with me on that particular matter. And if you can give me a biblical principle why you're not doing it, that's even much better. So if you can show the person from a biblical perspective that this is wrong, you should only marry the Lord, that person might be angry at first and disappointed that you did not attend the, the wedding. But I think on, on, on closer reflection, when they have in the sober moments, I think they will see the justification for your actions. And it has a way of uh, people becoming enlightened after something has happened and can still appreciate your friendship in spite of the fact that you didn't support what it did. 
going back to the situation there, the hypothetical that you mentioned where, which unfortunately happens many times, uh, a young lady, not even necessarily a young lady, gets pregnant, and then she and the her boyfriend are told, you need to get married. Um, you said marriage, getting married at that point as that is your basis is not necessarily a good thing. For the listener that says, Pastor Murphy, that's the situation I'm in. In fact, it may not even be public. No one else really knows yet that I am pregnant. How should I go forward? I know it's not the right situation, not a good situation, but how should I go forward? Well, I would tell anybody who find themselves pregnant and worry about that. You don't have to worry about anything. Everybody would know because it takes nine months to have a baby. So if you get married and you got married and within six months you had the baby or five months, I mean, it's nothing you can hide, quite frankly. And to save face and to cover up, and, and this is a lot of families do this, by the way. They don't want their daughter, anybody to know that the daughter is pregnant, et cetera, et cetera. But you've got to look at it uh, futuristically in the long term. The embarrassment is going to be there, period. Whether you marry or not, the embarrassment is going to be there because no, we're not fools. Right? We're not fools. Um, you can't have a baby and hide it and uh, have it baby without anybody knowing it's going to happen and everybody knows that a child normally is, is nine months and when they visit the child they know if it's a premature child or a mature child so that part of it you've got to get that out of your mind in your mind it's, it's so twisted that I'm trying to save face but again you can't really save face in the long term so the best thing to do is I mean if you if you love each other and uh, you really were planning to, uh, you know, it was really going to be get married at some point in time, et cetera, et cetera. And you made uh, a sinful mistake and you got your passions carried away and you got pregnant. Well, in a case like that, if you really love the person and it's a thing, I, I would not dispute the, the need for marriage. But uh, if it is not really a genuine love between the two persons, you just have to be very good friends. You just have to see each other too much and the hormones begin to act and you got into a passion and um, you, 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 you have what you might call a slip if you want to call that term not really a slip it's a, it's a deliberate act where you didn't control your your, your lust but it happens uh, don't complicate the matter now by rushing to marriage and then five years later or whatever it is uh, you get divorced or he get divorced whatever it is and by the way uh, the Bible uh, is very very clear on, on this matter of divorces there's only the legitimate reasons for divorce that the Bible endorses they're not um, not a lot of the reasons that are given today and only the person who has the uh, biblical grounds for divorce can proceed with remarriage. So it, it's uh, in spite of what is happening today and the luring of the uh, divorce laws and the um, no blame and all of that, that might relate to the secular world. But when it comes to the Christian faith and the, and the scriptures and the Bible, we follow the scriptures in spite of what government says or what the legal profession says. We, we, our first person is God first and man afterwards. So we have to um, be very, very careful. We don't rush into something and then it doesn't work out. And then uh, it results in something even worse, a divorce. And it not only affects you, it takes your child. If the child is already part of the, the situation, think of what that means uh, uh, in terms of that child being brought up in that kind of a situation where both of you blame each other. There's hate, there's guilt. Um, you're always fretting and quarreling, et cetera, et cetera. It's not healthy. Uh, for a child's environment to be brought up in. You referenced the fact in your introduction that a saved and an unsaved individual should never be joined together in marriage by a minister of the gospel, by a preacher, by a pastor. What about if you have two 
born-again believers, but they are in different denomination churches that have some pretty strong differences. What are your views on that? Or what, what from a biblical worldview, yeah. what is your advice? My, my view, uh, if there are two Christians, question, there, there's no doubt that they have biblical grounds to marry. They're two Christians, okay? But not, not any two Christians should marry. As a matter of fact, uh, Nathan, this is where I think premarital counseling is so important to face these facts. Um, in a case like that, uh, where a person goes to two, two different churches, where they hold two different biblical doctrines, etc., etc., that is actually the um, situation that create, creates foment. Uh, within a relationship that can lead to all kinds of differences and, and quarreling and fretting, etc. Of course, when the child is, a child is born now, the question is which denomination should go to. So those things have to be worked out. Generally speaking, when two people marry, the wife follows the husband where he goes. Uh, he is supposed to be the leader. Um, so he has to settle that uh, before. If she's not prepared to follow his leadership, I would not advise him to go into a marital relationship because if she can't uh, follow him on that on that spiritual basis alone, I don't see when you have other things to come in the future how she's going to be submissive to him and follow his leadership. So I would think that has to be settled long before uh, there is a, a, a marriage is, is, is consummated and, and the marriage takes place. And that's where a pastor, uh, even if he's not a, a counselor. Uh, if he has a person in his church and he's aware of that they're having this uh, relationship and it's going to lead to marriage, I think that's where he should actually have a meeting with her and the parents and discuss these type of things and explain the problems in the future so that if they violate uh, his counsel and his advice, well, again, they did it uh, against his counsel and advice, and therefore he doesn't have to feel a sense of guilt and disappointment. He saw it was going to happen, but he said nothing. And then it ends up in some kind of divorce or in a happy marriage. I think that uh, look, I I would say this, Nathan. The the we've got to the, the best thing we can do for anybody is to tell them the truth. Hmm. That's the that's the that's the best thing. So to to uh, to close our eyes to error, close our eyes to uh, mistakes people are going to make because of friendship or because of, of some other reason, we are doing them a great disservice. The greatest thing to do anybody is to, to tell them the truth, and and uh, and that's what we got to do. But tell them the truth in love. In other words, I can tell you the truth, but the way I tell you the truth, it can it can even have an impact on people. It can have be, be negative, but. Uh, we, we must speak truth to people, and that is the greatest asset, asset that we can give to them. Brother Williams is on the line. Thank you for calling, Brother Williams, and go ahead with your question, please. Good evening, Good evening sir. How are you doing? <clears throat> Fine, thank you. Brother yes. uh, Nathan, I, I lose your contact. Um, I want you to call me back for me, but uh, talk to you. All right. Uh, yes, sir. I would like you to explain... Proverbs 31, 4 to 9 for me. Proverbs 31, 4 to 9. Let me read those. It says, It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine, nor for the prince's strong drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. Give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish, and wine unto those that be of heavy hearts. Let him drink and forget his poverty, and remember his misery no more. 
Open their mouth, open thy mouth, for thy dumb in the cause of all shall as be appointed to destruction. Open thy mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and the needy. Yeah, I think the <clears throat> the, the, the main thing there is that the writer is emphasizing that uh, if a person becomes inebriated um, but through alcohol, his judgment is impaired, so therefore he can't make a, ju- a righteous judgment. And remember the kings and the princes in those days were equivalent also to the judges. They made decisions, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so he's, he's basically saying that, you know, you shouldn't drink. You shouldn't become, uh, because you become drunk. And if you become drunk, you you have uh, mental impairment, and therefore you can't make solid decisions and, and good judgment. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the he's saying that, you know, uh, uh, it's not for kings, but uh, quite frankly, uh, people who want to forget their miseries and forget their problems, et cetera, et cetera, uh, those are the type of people that would use alcohol. Uh, he's not in any way um, endorsing that you give people uh, alcohol to get rid of the problems, but he's just saying I mean, these are the type of people that uh, alcohol belong would would um, would use alcohol. So it, it's more of a um, a contrast and um, trying to uh, elevate the fact that a, a person who has to be dealing with people's questions and providing answers and counsel to them. Uh, need to have a firm mind and a solid mind and a rational mind, and the alcoholic beverage impairs that, therefore uh, desists from it as a person who is in a leadership position where you have to counsel people and give them advice. But it's not, it's not advocating uh, that you just go ahead and, and use alcohol, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, just join a contrast between the two. Very, very friendly because the Bible tells you when it's a move. It's a, it's a mocker, yeah. That, that's why we. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, but again, that is not. It's not advocating that you 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 um, actually find people who have problems and just give them alcohol. It, it just simply saying that. Uh, that is one of the alcohol, one of the use of alcohol even today. Quite frankly, why why do you think people are in the rum shops? Yeah. Uh, most people in the rum shops are trying to drink away their their problems. They got they, can't, they don't want to go home because they've got so many problems at home. They can't uh, handle those problems, so they're trying to virtually escape those problems. So they go into the the, the, the thing and they drink and they get away their worries. Why do you think there's so much use of drugs? Uh, uh, why do you think there's so much marijuana use uh, in this country? Uh, why do you think it's, it's so pervasive almost uh, globally now? Is because people can't cope with their lives, and their god has become uh, the marijuana cigarette. Uh, that's the one they lean on to solve their problems. That's the one they lean on to to to, uh, to give them balance and peace and and give them a sense of ecstasy and et cetera, et cetera. Of course, we as Christians, our God is 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 the Lord God of Heaven. We turn to Him in time of need. We turn to Him in time of despair when we have difficulties. When we got bills we can't pay, we don't turn to the marijuana, which is the smoking stock, really the the God that is being worshipped. Um, so. We are, we are different than they are, uh, but basically the same purpose is, is, is uh, served by the use of alcohol um, in the Old Testament time. It's still used today as well. Okay, and one last sure. thing, Isaiah, Isaiah 520. Are you going to say nothing, please? Isaiah 520? Yes. Okay, let me mm-hmm. see if I can answer that. Isaiah 520, just scroll down to the verse. 
says, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Yeah, he's talking about the moral inversion of the times in which he live, and we are currently going through that. Today, bad is good and good is bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, when a man is said to be bad, uh, it doesn't mean, it means it very opposite. And so we, we, we've taken language now, and we now um, reverse the meaning of language. When I was a boy, I can say to you, Mr. Williams, you're a gay person. I can't use that word any longer. They've destroyed that word now. That anytime I say that you're a gay person, you might might knock me down or shoot me or, or do something with me because the word connotes something completely different. That's the change of language. And it's warning uh, those people to, uh, that they're, they're going to be held account, accountable to God uh, who are promoting and calling something that's evil good. Like the, the whole homosexual movement today, uh, I think it's the, the, to my mind, it's, the most depraved uh, movement uh, that is getting a lot of head start. I just saw, uh, I don't watch television, but I just saw on the nudes where they were, um, this morning, uh, one of my, my daughter-in-law was watching the news, and part of the news was they were introducing these two people, and (laughs) I couldn't believe it. There were two women that were married. One was the husband and one was the wife and one was kissing the other one and talking about... I I, I was shocked that it is so brazen and brought into your home I, as a matter of fact, I turned off the television set and they asked me why I turned it off. I said, well, I, I, this is not something that we should want to be, uh, be heard in the home. You know, you've got small kids coming up. But it is all part of the perverse... Uh, depravity of, that we face today, that these things, moral inversion is taking place, and the day of accountability is, is coming. Uh, indeed, uh, I think judgment has already begun uh, by a lot of things that are happening. You had AIDS, now you have the monkeypox, and I'm telling you something else worse is coming. Uh, you can't violate the moral standards of God uh, without having consequences. Uh, this is a moral universe, and God is still in charge, and He will make sure that what a man sows, he's going to reap. Brother Brother Williams, thank you very much for your call. We appreciate it. And continue to listen and encourage others to tune in to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, 1160 AM and 92.3 FM. If you have friends or family elsewhere around the world, you can encourage them to listen online at radiolighthouse.org. Pastor, before we jump into new material, a question that just came to my mind right before Brother Williams called. Did God intend for marriage to be a joy? Well, uh, you you can answer that question in the affirmative because um, you you saw in the book of Proverbs uh, that the person who finds a wife finds what? A good thing. Favor and good thing, quite frankly. There's no question about that. Also, uh, if you look back in the account that's given to you in the book of Genesis, it's very, very clear that when God brought um, Adam and Eve together, imagine uh, having a perfect paradise where every need that you could think of is met. 
uh, you got uh, rivers you can bathe in. You got pools. You got uh, you got all the food that you need. You got uh, idyllic paradise where you got flowers all over the place. You got animals that are not. F- you got you got pets of every kind that you could imagine. No weeds. Uh, no weeds. <laughs> no thorns. Uh, you, you know. You, 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 that's what God intended. That's it's very very clear. And by the way, a lot of people who talk about what um, like fighting for freedom. Even those that are not Christians, when I say Christian, the way that we are Christians, those who wrote books that emphasized freedom, they went back to Genesis to see how God made man, that man was intended to be free, that government must, uh, he instituted government not to um, uh, coerce man and control man to the point where man doesn't have freedom. So they always go back to Genesis that this was God's ideal. So the idea of freedom today, quite frankly, has... um, uh, the book of Genesis is the um, the background for all of that, and uh, so. But it's very clear from the scriptures when you look at what God's plan was that uh, He intended it to be a time of joy and pleasure and unity, uh, time of communication and friendship and and, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, time of real supreme happiness. That was God's ideal until it was spoiled as a result of sin. You're listening to That's Truth. We still have 45 minutes left in this episode of That's Truth. Plenty of time for you to encourage others to tune in. Plenty of time for you to call in with your question. The phone line is open and available. The phone number to call to ask your question live on the air is 1-268-462-7420. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to the following number. one 268 7821454 maybe this is the very first time you have ever tuned into that's truth and you're saying I don't want my question I have a question but I don't want to tie it back to me listen just put anonymous at the beginning of your question and we won't even uh the call screener when she types it into the message program for me she won't even mention whether it came from the Caribbean or not, it will just be a question, and it will not get tied back to you in any way. Again, thank you for your interaction on the program tonight. You don't have to ask a question about the topic we're discussing, which is marriage, divorce, and remarriage. You can ask about any topic, and Pastor will answer it from a biblical worldview. Pastor, as we jump back into this topic of marriage, remarriage, and divorce, what are some biblical terms that maybe I should have my eye attuned for when it comes to divorce, and what do they mean? Well, one of the things, if you're going to um, be able to discover what um, biblical divorce is, one of the things you've got to do is do etymology, the study of the words. Uh, and in the Old Testament, there are three words that are used connection with uh, divorce. One of the words, shalah, uh, is found in Jeremiah 3.1. All right, let me pull that up. Jeremiah 3 and verse 1 says, Mm -hmm. They say, if a man put away his wife, and she go from him and become another man's, shall he return unto her again? Shall not that land be greatly polluted? But thou hast played the harlot with many lovers, yet return again unto me, saith the Lord. Yeah, the word there, put away, is the Old Testament word for divorce, and it literally means to send away. So that's one of the Old Testament words. Uh, when a person divorces a person, they send the person away, uh, they put the person away. The other word, uh, Nathan, is the word garish, 
and it means to drive out, it means to cast out or to put away. You find that in Numbers 30, verse 9. Numbers 30 and verse 9 reads as follows, But every vow of a widow and of her that is divorced, wherewith they have bound their souls, shall stand against her. See the one that is the word divorce there? That's the word garish, and it means to put away. It means also to drive out or to cast out. And then the third word that um, is used for divorce is in Deuteronomy 24, 1. Deuteronomy 24 and verse 1 says, When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement, and give it in her hand, and send her out of his house. Well, the word there for divorce is the word carry tooth, and it comes in the word karath, which means to make a covenant. So really, uh, to divorce is to break the covenant. That's where divorce is, it's breaking the covenant. So those are three um, words, and basically saying the same thing. You broke the covenant, and you send the person away, you put the person away. That's what divorce is in the Old Testament. Now, when you come to the New Testament, there are two words that are used for divorce. Uh, Luke sixteen eighteen. Luke sixteen eighteen says... Whosoever putteth away his wife, and marrieth another committeth adultery. And whosoever marrieth her that is put away from her husband committeth adultery. That word there is the word apoluo, and it means to put away, release, or dismiss. It's quite similar to the Old Testament words, but that's one of the New Testament words, so basically saying the same thing. The other New Testament word for divorce is found in Mark 10.40. Mark 10:40 But to sit on my right hand uh, Mark 10 verse 40 Yeah uh, but to sit on my right hand and on my, yeah and on my left hand is not given to me no. but shall be given unto them to whom it is prepared Okay it uh, I'm not it must not be Mark try Matthew 10:40 and see what that got there All right Matthew chapter 10 and verse 40. He that receiveth you receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. No, uh, anyhow, the, the word that is used, the other word is the word apostasion, and it comes in the word apostemi, which means to move or to desert or to revolt. And it's in one of the Gospels. It's, it's 1040, so it must be... Oh, 10.4 says, Mark 10.4 says, And they said... Moses suffered to write a bill yeah, of divorcement yeah, and to put her away. Yeah, yeah, right. The, the word that is used there is the word apostasion, and it comes to the word apostemi, which means to remove or to desert or to revolt. So when you look at both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the idea of putting away and the idea of breaking the covenant is inherent in both concepts that you find in, in, in there. So that is the basic New Testament words and the Old Testament words for the word divorce. And it all has to do with putting away uh, the individual. Now that we have that foundation out of the way, are there any biblical grounds for divorce? Well, uh, this is a controversial subject, but I am convinced, uh, and there are a lot of uh, good, solid Bible scholars who agree, <laughs> I agree with, not that they agree with me because they're much smarter than I am, but quite frankly, uh, there are two basic uh, biblical grounds for divorce. Uh, first one is infidelity, and that has to do with uh, sexual immorality of any kind. 
Our Lord dealt with this in two passages, Matthew 5.23 and Matthew 19.9. Matthew 5.23 says, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee. That's Matthew 5.23? Well, I'm I'm really messing up tonight. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What was the other reference? uh, 19.9. Matthew 19 verse 9 says... And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, also doth commit adultery. It is very, very clear uh, in that passage that our Lord makes it clear that the only condition for divorce is immorality. And the word that is used there, adultery, is not the normal uh, word for adultery. In other words, the word there is sexual immorality. So it, uh, you you can have, in other words, you if you go to the Old Testament, you'll find there are sexual sins that identify that God calls evil and abominable, including adultery. So it involves incest as well. That word is a common word that is an umbrella term for sexual immorality, the word is pornea. That's the word that is used there. So it also can be homosexuality. A person, so it don't have to be with another woman. It could be a man with a man, a woman with a woman. That is a basis for it because that is sexual sin. It can also be bestiality. It doesn't have to be a human being, which the Bible condemns. So that is why that term is used as opposed to just using the one word that is the common word for adultery. It has to do with sexual immorality. Sexual immorality or infidelity in the marriage automatically breaks the marital covenant of oneness. That's the point our Lord is making. And that becomes a basis for divorce. Now, I would like to to say this. Our Lord is not advocating that because a partner has fallen into some kind of sexual indiscretion, that that is an automatic basis for for divorce. It is a biblical basis for divorce, but he is regulating divorce the tendency to uh, widen the umbrella for divorce and uh, where people were just getting divorced for everything. He's, he's, he's putting some uh, confinement on it. That if there's going to be divorce, it has to be sexual immorality because um, if you check the New Testament times, uh, there were two different schools of thought about divorce. And one rabbi believed that you can only divorce according to the book of Deuteronomy if they found something in, in the wife they didn't like. The other guy on the other hand said that you can divorce for anything. If she burned a sausage, you can divorce her. It doesn't matter if she burned the water, you can divorce her. Anything would go. So these were the two competing uh, rabbis about divorce. Our Lord now settles that. And again, he emphasizes the matter that the only legitimate grounds for divorce is moral infidelity within the marriage. That is the uh, the one that uh, our Lord gives uh, in Matthew chapter 19. And it's also in Matthew chapter 5. I, I'll have to find it and give it to you before uh, we go, but it's actually there as well. Um, so, um, yes, look at Matthew 32. Oh, I said 23, right? Um, I reverse my numbers. It's actually 32. <laughs> I must be dyslexic. 
Yeah, Matthew 5, 32, 32 yeah. says, But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving the cause for fornication, causeth her to commit adultery, and whoso shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. Again, it's the same, uh, the same word, pornea, that is used there. It has to do with sexual immorality. Notice twice, Matthew 5, Matthew 19, our Lord emphasizes this is the, uh, the biblical grounds for, uh, for, for divorce. The other basis of divorce is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15 to 17. 1 Corinthians seven fifteen to 17 says, But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband, or how thou knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? In verse 17, But as God hath distributed to every man, as the Lord hath called every one, so let him walk, and so ordain I in all churches. Yeah. Uh, The Apostle Paul is is saying that you've got an unequally yoked situation. A husband, one is saved. Uh, husband is saved, wife is not saved, or vice, vice versa. The wife is saved, the husband is not saved. Paul would say, if the uh, in the same passage, uh, in that same chapter seven, if the person who is unsaved is pleased to stay in the marriage, the marriage must remain intact. Okay, you don't just jettison the person because you become a Christian and you're married to this person now. You just because you want to marry a Christian. Paul says absolutely not. If the person wants to remain with you and um, the marriage remains intact. However, if that uh, unsafe person abandons the relationship and jettisons the relationship and deserts the, 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 uh, the other partner and says, I, I don't want to be married to you, I don't want to be, you know, whatever it is, and goes off and leaves the person, the believer is no longer bound. And by the way, that's the same word that is used in the chapter 7 where it says a, a man, a woman is bound to a husband so long as he lives. It's the same word. Paul is now saying in a situation like that, the person is no longer bound. So abandonment or desertion is another ground for divorce. But notice it's the unsafe person that leaves. Uh, it's not the safe person that leaves the relationship. So that only pertains to an unequally yoked marriage where an unsafe person breaks up the marriage because they don't want to be married to a believer and they want to go their own way, do their own thing and live their own lifestyle. What about, and I realize I'm delving into the realm of hypothetical, you have a husband who's not saved, a wife becomes saved, but she wants the relationship to be dissolved. She wants him to abandon so that she can remarry in the Lord. And she's almost preaching at him, almost rather than being pleasant about her Christianity, being overly abrasive to where he wants to throw in the towel. Would she be an innocent party then? No, she can't be innocent. You're breaking it deliberately, provoking and creating the environment that poisons the environment so that the other person is almost um, forced to leave. You have created that. So you you yourself have no no basis now because you're the one that has actually um, driven the person into desertion and caused the person to abandon the relationship. So that that clearly would fall outside the pale of what Paul is teaching in chapter seven. Uh, so, and, and by the way, you can see where the apostle Paul is, is um, putting strictures because he saw that this would happen. 
And that's why he said, if the unsaved person is pleased to stay in the relationship within the marriage, Paul says, let the believer not put that person away. So that doesn't appeal uh, to that matter. One thing that you, you might want to um, probably ask, so, so Pastor, what happens now when another Christian, uh, two Christians are married, and one person leaves. What happens in a case like that now? Again, if you look at Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 to 11. First Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 and 11 says, And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband, but if she depart, let her remain unmarried. Or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. Again, it's very, very clear now. Now you've got a situation, you've got two saved people, but one decide they're leaving. The Apostle Paul said there are only two options. Number one, the person who leaves must remain unmarried. Or there must be reconciliation, she comes back to her, her partner. That's the biblical model for two Christians, right? Uh, and uh, so... If you don't go back to these biblical strictures uh, that is trying to put brakes on the infidelity and the increased divorce rate that we are witnessing today, uh, people would just divorce for any reason. Which is what we're at. That's, that's where we are. And I am afraid that churches are encouraging it. And what I mean by that is uh, pastors got to be very, very careful if they're going to perform a, a, a person who is divorced to get it very settled in your mind that this is a real case of abandonment attempted um, reconciliation was, was, was attempted and this unsafe person said I, I don't want that uh, But so you're going to have to do your investigation you just can't somebody come to you and tell you you know my marriage got broke up my wife left me whatever it is uh, just for the sake of numbers in a church or getting somebody into the church by, by just uh, compromising biblical principles uh, it's one of the great faults of our times I just read, Nathan, um, on a... You ever heard of Exodus? The book of Exodus? No. There's a movement in the States where there were a Christian group that were trying to help homosexuals find healing. Okay. And uh, I just saw it. It just came to mind on, on, the, on the internet. The guy that did that for over 30 years, you know what he's now done? He's apologizing to the homosexuals that he ever tried to get them healed. I, I just... I read it yesterday. I almost bawled. I almost cried. Uh, I could not believe that it was possible, but he has now become brainwashed. Politically that correct. You, yeah, that's what he's become. And I, I, I never thought that would ever happen, but that gives you an idea that we are living in perilous times where there's such moral inversion, so much confusion about morality, and such a deviation from biblical truth that it's going to be a minority who still hold to these biblical truths. Uh, our time is late. The day is at hand. There's no question about that. Here's a WhatsApp message that's come in from a listener. Uh, good evening, all. Believers often share testimonies of God's work in their life to glorify and bear witness of Him. Some things are easier to share than others. For example, we may be more willing to share God's aid in a financial or emotional crisis than we are to share about dishonesty and secret addictions we struggle with. Sometimes certain details are necessary to bluntly tell the real dangers in something God warns us against, especially when dealing with adults. What guidelines can help with knowing what to share and how to share it and the risks to consider? 
Well, I would think depends on where you're sharing it would be one of the big factors. Uh, I would also think the audience is another thing that uh, sharing that the person, young people uh, that have not been exposed to the kind of evil that maybe you want to make a confession about whatever it is. And you've got to make sure it's not salacious, the details. You can just give a general thing of what happened without going into all the all the uh, salacious details that uh, uh, cause people's eyes to pop and ears to open and then uh, create in themselves uh, uh a vicarious sense of enjoying what has happened, et cetera, et cetera. So I, th- I would suggest to you that that would be something to look at. Um, uh, and I think, as I said, I think the key thing here has to do with your, your conscience as well. What is your conscience leading you to do? What's the whole purpose of what you're doing? Uh, um, you know, my says confess your faults one to another, and that has to do with if a person is offended, you offended, you go to the person, et cetera, et cetera. But if something is done privately, is dealt with privately, something is public, you deal with it publicly. I think those are some other guidelines that would help you in this, in this whole matter. And the other, the overall thing is, it, is it edifying? I think that would be another very, very mm-hmm. important. Is it really edifying? When people hear this, uh, what are they going to go away thinking? Is it going to just be uh, a picture in their mind that uh, they regurgitate and it just creates evil thoughts in their mind is, is that going to be helpful uh, is that is that going to help them or is that going to destroy them etc etc so I think the, the idea of edification has to be a vital principle as, to, as far as what, what you share so I just mentioned the audience would be one the occasion uh, would be another the matter of whether or not it is salacious and too detailed uh, is it public or, or private and then of course the, the important thing here would be is it beneficial and expedient that you share it uh, at that point in time I do feel that people can be helped sometimes um, uh, when people give some things that has happened to them because uh, there are times that people think that uh, you know a person is perfect and then they share something and realize hey he's a human being like I'm a human being that does help on the other hand, uh, you you can say some things that give such a negative picture of you that virtually your whole uh, concept of yourself is demeaned and uh, their regard for you now is lowered rather than elevated, uh, and you have to bear that in mind uh, as well. But the final thing I would say, let your conscience uh, guide you if you feel if God if you, before God you bring this in before God and you feel that this is not the thing you should do and your conscience said no I would not go against my conscience uh, I would let conscience be my guide especially if it's a sanctified conscience informed with scripture I would let that be a guide and the last thing I would say to you if you still have doubts talk to your pastor talk to your pastor and see what he thinks he knows the church he knows the people in the church if you're talking about a church situation and uh, get some words from him and maybe he can allow you to share it but he could perhaps guide you into how far you go what details you give etc etc and bring a more balance uh, to this kind of matter Thank you for sending in that question. We appreciate it. And I can guarantee that you are not the only one that will benefit from hearing the answer to that question. Again, if you have a question and you'd like to call and ask it live on the air, call 268-462-7420. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text it, send it to 1-268-782-1454. And if you want to send it to us on Facebook, go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video program, video feed, 
that's taking place right here on Tuesday evening as we are doing the program live. And then right there on your device in the comment section, comment your question, your concern, your thought, your future, your suggested topic for a future episode of That's Truth, and we will pass it along to Pastor Murphy. Pastor, you were talking about, uh, or you are talking about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and a couple of times, in fact, I think one of the verses even referenced Moses' writings in the beginning, the first five books of the Bible, talking about a bill of divorcement. What was that, and what was its purpose? Well, I think um, if you look at Deuteronomy 24 verse 1 um, and read the few passages there uh, this will give you an idea of the reference to the bill of divorcement that was instituted under the Mosaic economy Deuteronomy 24 verse 1 when a man hath taken a wife and married her and it come to pass did she find no favor in his eyes because he hath found some uncleanness in her then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. Yeah, so basically uh, the bill of divorcement was a legal document that was designed to clear the woman of any stigma of adultery. Uh, So it was really to protect the innocent person and so that um, it gave her a legal status in society so that she can remarry. Now think of what it means if he sends her away, she doesn't get this legal document that clears her of the stigma of adultery, that she is uh, put away for other reasons. Number one, she's exposed to stoning because under the Old Testament economy, if you commit adultery, you would be stoned. The other thing is, of course, if you are put away and um, she didn't commit adultery, it means that if somebody marries her now, uh, quite frankly, they have married her illegitimately. Uh, so that is where is a bill that was designed to clear her of any stigma and to protect her innocence. And it was basically given to regulate the abuse of divorce. Uh, where, as I mentioned before, uh, the Jewish rabbis, um, one of them were saying, you know, you can divorce a woman for any cause. The other one was saying, no, strictly it has to be some kind of moral issue. And, of course, people lean towards the loose um, leader or rabbi who is advocating um, a free-for-all divorce. Uh, So it was designed to regulate it and control it. And uh, and he gave the reason for it, by the way. It has to do because of the hardness of people's heart, uh, basically at the core of this whole thing. So this, this is why it was given, Nathan. It was always to protect the women who um, could be justly dismissed and there's no justification and uh, there's no divorce. If she doesn't have the, le- the, the, the document divorce, she can't remarry either. So that's a, she puts her at such a great disadvantage and that's why um, it was given to her. Why is divorce so common? And is it one of those cases that you think it is more common now? Do the statistics show that it is more common now than it would have been in the past? Well, I don't think anybody would dispute the fact that divorce has escalated. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was just thinking when I was coming to the boy, I didn't know anybody who was divorced. Hmm. Then after the church was founded, I, and we within our church afterwards, um, I think when we got into maybe our 20s, or uh, yeah, in our 20s, is when we had the first divorce 
in our church, two people that got divorced. But I knew nothing about divorce before I was a boy. It was it's so uncommon. Uh, now today, is you can go to any church, and there'll be several people sitting in the pew who have gone to not just one divorce, two and three divorces, quite frankly. Uh, so it is a major, major problem. The family is not intact. And when the family is not intact, society disintegrates. And uh, divorce is never good for the couple. It's never good for the children. It's never good for society either. So something needs to be done to reverse that. But uh, there are a lot of reasons why it happens, Nathan. There's a decline in, in, in what I call morality. We've gone away from the uh, Judeo-Christian consensus, uh, biblical morality. We're now into what is called moral relativism, or what is called the um, humanism, where man is the measure of all things, and man decides what is right and what is wrong. That's where we are today. Uh, We don't have any transcendent absolutes that people generally hold to any longer. Every man has become a law unto himself. There's also the matter of the easy divorce laws. In my day when it was coming up, you couldn't just get a divorce. You had to go to court and give a reason. There had to be some kind of investigation and proof, etc. Now you can go to court and you don't need to have a reason, quite frankly. It's called no-fault divorce. That's what made it difficult to divorce. You had to really prove that this was a, a just reason for divorce. Today, quite frankly, it, 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 uh, it's... And then, of course, um, I think, Nathan, to a lot of premarital involvement, um, I have said this on another program, you have created the environment where uh, both husband and wife, both people who are going into marriage, they have acquired tastes not for one person. Mm-hmm. They have... They want a cafeteria-style relationship. and uh, And I think that this in itself creates the environment that after marriage, this taste doesn't go away. Uh, it is something etched in the mind. That's why Paul says that a man that commits fornication commits fornication against his body. There's something that happens in the body once that begins to happen. And I think that this uh, leads to a lot of dissatisfaction. And the, the thing there, Nathan, I think is the comparison. Uh, when you are, when you've been through three and four different women or three, five and six different men, now you get into a marriage situation, you can't help making comparisons when intimacy is happening, and that in itself could create dissatisfaction in, in the marriage. The other thing I think also is that you know a lot of people married because of financial and material reasons. It's not really a, a really a love thing. I just mentioned a guy from another island who said that seventy-year-old men are married forty-five-year-old women. A lot of that basically is that they got security, they got their home. They got everything and these people are looking for security but it's not really uh, a real genuine authentic genuine love that is there I think that is another thing and then I think to Nathan what happened people are seeking fulfillment in their career and sacrificing the marriage so the time that is needed to make the marriage work is now devoted to courses and going away and studying and all different types of things so that in the absence uh, of that happening some things happen with their partner because they grow closer to somebody else as well. So I think that that is another big thing uh, as well. And then the the emphasis on personal rights today. I think that, again, it's not a matter of self-sacrifice any longer. It's I have rights. Right? It's not responsibility either. It's I have rights. That kind of a mindset is never conducive to a long-lasting marriage. And then we're living in what I call an identity crisis. We've lost a sense of meaning and purpose. And when you take the fact that uh, today people... Uh, getting away from God. And remember, evolution said that we are cosmic accident. 
So I have a cosmic accident. I have no me. There's no meaning and purpose to my life. Why, why am I here? Right? I think that is also another fact. And then the other thing is the midlife crisis. Most everybody comes from midlife crisis. That's between 45 and 50. And a lot of marriages uh, begin to have problems during that period of time. Men are trying to rejuvenate the youth because they're, they're now on the decline, right? And uh, uh, that is where the young girl comes in, the more attractive person comes in. And I must say this uh, as well that people may not uh, be appreciate my saying this, but sometimes obesity. Uh, he is working with attractive young ladies that have trim figures. He goes home and she's like a bulldozer, quite frankly. Uh, that uh, affects his thinking. She has to keep herself to keep herself attractive. If she doesn't keep herself attractive, she, he might find that way. And again, when it was, and again, it also works both ways. He and, and this is the thing with, with men as well. Men are always thought women um, not to, but look at a lot of the men pouch bellies <laughs> like they're pregnant. Okay, uh, and she is at work with a young, trim, young person who is attractive. Quite frankly, um, you know, this should not really affect us as Christians. But the reality is that men are attracted by sight. Women by touch, right? And these things need to be uh, need to be, be to be considered as well. And then what they call the emptiness uh, syndrome, where they've invested so much time in the children, they had no time for themselves. Now the children have gone; they just got a shell, and they realize they're looking at each other, at each other, and there's nothing there, quite frankly. And they try to find uh, emotional fulfillment outside the marriage because of the emptiness, and. Um, the other thing I think is uh, pornography. I've mentioned this so many, many times. It's destroying so many homes, so many marriages. What men expect women to do today, I, I don't think it's possible for them to reach that level of depravity uh, sometimes to, to fulfill that need. And, and of course, women are now into it as well, and etc. Et so I think that is also helping. Um, and then the other thing I mentioned uh, as well is the trap of male and female working in the in the working environment. I think that is the greatest uh, grounds uh, for divorce, quite frankly, it happens, and, and infidelity, that closeness between male and female in the workplace. And finally, I would say, uh, Nathan, I think the lack of deep spirituality is just not there. Uh, we have good Christians, but many times we don't have godly Christians. There's a difference between there. I think that deep spirituality is missing, and we're living, people living on a very shallow level, and uh, therefore they're not able to fortify their faith. And when these things begin to appeal to them, uh, they give in, and that leads to infidelity, etc. We've got about 10 minutes left in this episode of That's Truth. Pastor, media is constantly making divorce look like the answer to a difficult marriage, the uh, the rosy end at the solution. Is divorce devastating? Uh, there's no question about that. Uh, sometimes I would say that it is even more devastating than death itself. But let me give you why yeah. I say that. When it comes to death... Uh, Reminiscing is very prominent. You're thinking about the person, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. When it comes to divorce, rejection is prominent. So it's not reminiscing now. Uh, the person is you're rejected, you're rejected. When it comes to death, memories are precious. 
when it comes to divorce, memories are very, 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 very painful for a person. And then uh, when it comes to death, there's closure. When it comes to divorce, uh, especially when children evolve, the consequences can be a lifetime. So it is very, 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 very devastating. Um, it, uh, and not only that, uh, the trauma of divorce uh, creates a trust deficit uh, with a person. So a person who's gone through divorce finds it very hard to trust somebody else again, to trust another partner. And then nothing destroys the image more of a person that there's some deficiency in their lives, they're not whole. You live with that, uh, to think that uh, I was not good enough, whatever it is. So that is, it scars your mind, and it never goes away. A person dies, it, it pains you, but they're dead, they're gone. In, 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 the, in, the, in the divorce, it's always there, it's a memory. Every time you see the person, every time you think about it, the pain is there, the anguish is there, it never goes away. And, and that's why the Bible says when the two uh, become one, uh, they become permanent, and uh, let no man cut asunder. cut asunder. The word there is that they become one, they become glued. If you glue any two pieces of wood together, you can tear them apart. But there's always damage. Both pieces get damaged. Some one part of the wood would pull away from the other and leave a, a hole. But they're never the same uh, again when you come to a divorce. Never again would you be the same. Your whole characters change. Your whole personality change. It's a very painful thing to, to go through. As a counselor, if a divorce has happened, are is it possible to quantify some stages of recovery? Those who... Um, do counseling in the area of divorce have indicated that there are really three basic stages that people go through when they go through a divorce. Um, the first stage is called turbulence. That's the uh, trying to cope with it. That normally lasts for about six months. Uh, that's the time when you're dealing, uh, have a whirlwind of emotions. We're dealing with guilt and depression and a sagging self worth. Uh, all the investment uh, that you spent in the margin now eroded. The very foundations of your life seem to be crumbling. And this period is very, very difficult uh, for a person. Um, they said that during this, pe type of this period as well, uh, you go through a type of denial. Uh, you can't believe that this is really happening to you. Uh, this is not really happening. So you're not... You talk about uh, embarrassment as well. How do I face my family and my friends? Uh, this kind of matter. And then, of course, intense loneliness. I never knew it could be uh, feel so lonely, even when I'm among other people. And then uh, pain, uh, uh, emotional pain, the sense of rejection. Um, I am not desirable. Um, uh, I don't know if there's anything about me that anybody can love. And then there's fear. Uh, depending on how the divorce went, uh, your your standard of living can actually plummet uh, depending on the security that you have and if the assets are going to be shared or not. So there's also this fear, financial fear, uh, that goes on. And the above all uh, is, is anger, uh, a deep sense of hate uh, for the person normally happens, a deep sense of resentment. This is why they call it a time of turbulence. Uh, it's a very, very difficult time. Uh, this is the first stage that people go through um, after divorce. Immediately, these are things that they go through, and that is a turbulent period for, for their lives. I have a question that's come in. Pastor, 
What does it mean in Matthew 19 when the Lord says, except for fornication, if my husband has been together with another woman and he claims he did not have intercourse with her, but he did have some kind of sexual involvement with an orgasm for both of them with her and he doesn't want to tell me exactly what it was and he is still in contact with this woman because she works at the same place he does, would that fall into a category of a divorce? If you bring a person to a climax and orgasm, quite frankly, that's a sexual act. I don't know how you put it. Um, that is why oral sex would be fall into the same category. That's why the word is used there is immorality. That's the word that is used. So it's it's not just um, 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 what I'm trying to say to you that the word, the general word that's used there, carries the amount of sexual immorality. That would be sexual immorality for sure. What you just described. I don't think any other way to describe it. It's like President Clinton saying on the rule on the thing. I remember him. I did not have sex with this woman. Then to later discover he had oral sex with her that he had to admit. I mean, you can't have it both ways. Um, that's a, a immoral act with a person who is not your wife. And if that happened to your husband, that's an immoral act. However, please, if you are a Christian and this has occurred, this is not to, to tell you rush into divorce. There has to be some element where and forgiveness is, is there. We're all made of, our feet are made of clay, yeah. and we all make mistakes. Uh, provided there's not an ongoing uh, act of infidelity, uh, I, I do feel that you should take that into consideration. However, I would say to you, you the biblical grounds are there. Uh, no question about that. But um, that's not why our Lord gave that. Uh, he is trying to regulate the abuse of the divorce certificate, where a person could just, you know, in and out of marriage as though marriage doesn't mean anything. So it was really to, more to control uh, the incidence of divorce than it is to perpetuate it and to encourage it. But there had to be uh, at least, he's aware as well that they had to make a concession to human weakness. Uh, and if, uh, the innocent party should not be made to, to, to suffer as a result of the guilty party. There's no justice in that. And the other thing I, I think is very important for us today is this. The days have gone where people can just fool around. Those days are gone. When I was a boy, the only two things that people worried about, gonorrhea and syphilis. Today, you have over 25 major STDs. As a matter of fact, it's more than that. But the, more, the major ones are 20, and some of these are deadly and perpetual. Um, they can't be cured. You have to live with them all your life. You have to be medicated. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's, it's far more serious today than it was when I was a boy. And that has to be carried in consideration with your partner when it comes to infidelity, that he endangers your life, uh, endangers your health. Uh, that has to be born. So that is why I think that it is wise that our Lord did give that escape clause, because it is a very serious matter. Um, a health matter a physical matter as well thank you to the individual who sent in that very heartfelt question pastor in the last couple of minutes uh, the first stage was turbulence what are the other stages well the other one has to do with the transition where you begin now after about six months you begin to adjust and accept the fact that um, things have changed um, you begin to um, as a person if you're a believer you begin to look to God for healing and for help in, in that regard and this normally takes Nathan between six months to two years it takes a long long time this transition period because you're you're over that period of um, trauma 
but you're still coping with some of the residual effects of it. And, and during this time of uh, transition, um, you've got to try to reject your negative thoughts that will impinge on your mind once in a while. Uh, you need to recognize that the divorce, if it was not your fault, don't carry the burden, the responsibility. Review the whole thing that what has happened. If you feel that during this period of time, reflect on the relation dynamics that went on between the two of you. And if you feel that uh, there was some factor that you were partly responsible for causing the disintegration of marriage, well, again, there's only one thing to do with that. The Bible says we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins. But don't carry that burden when you could cast that, that, that uh, care upon him. And then um, relinquish what you believe is your rights uh, and begin a process of forgiving uh, that, that person, right? And what would be the final stage? Well, the final stage is thriving. When you've now started to uh, rebuild your life, move forward, and look forward with optimism and hope. In the last 30 seconds, Pastor, in movies... Even in the news media, there's more and more discussion and attempt to normalize the concept of open marriage. Is there any place for that in the biblical worldview? Absolutely none. Absolutely none. And what is your basis for what you've been saying tonight? Scripture. We go to the Bible and it makes it very, very clear what marriage is. Man and wife, two becomes one. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth. Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.